Now, the bigger uh, title of the series is The Problem of Evil. We know we have evil in the world and the power of the gospel. And we have seen what we might call man's wisdom captured in the first speech of Eliphaz. And he's been kind of going with the religious philosophical uh, ideas that we might run into as we talk to friends and family. If you do good things, then good things are going to happen in your life. If you do bad things, then bad things are probably going to happen in your life. And you hear people talk about the law of karma. Well, the law of karma is actually an Eastern thought. And that is not a biblical teaching. However, the Bible does teach the law of sowing and reaping. But as we've been discovering in the book of Job, what has happened to Job is not because he has sown something bad. It's not because he's done something wrong or committed some grievous sin against God. In fact, just the opposite. Job is an incredibly upright man. God has been boasting on him before uh, Lucifer or Satan. But Job has hit a low of lows, one that we can probably most of us barely even imagine. And life has become what we might call unfair. How many of you have said that at some point in your life? Life just isn't fair. Now, well, you might have said this when you were young. You may say this on the freeway. You may say this at your job when you were overlooked for a promotion. You may, you may have said it to God before. That doesn't seem fair, or I don't understand what's going on. I was listening to a broadcast. Uh, I was on Family Life, and this lady was saying that we live in a culture of comfort. See if this resonates with you. We live in a culture of comfort. We want to be comfortable. But have you noticed that just about everything that God will ask of you in this life, are you ready? will take you out of your comfort zone. <laughs> Can I get a witness? It's true, right? Just about everything that God has asked me to do over the years of the ministry in, as a pastor have been out of my comfort zone. Public speaking, out of my comfort zone. You say, really, Pastor Michael? Really? Now, of course, it's been years and Things, you know, have become a little bit easier. But I do think that God loves to stretch us, to put us in times and situations where we have to rely on Him. See, His power is going to be most seen in your life when you have to be reliant on God, not on your own natural gifts and abilities, but reliant upon God. And so the book of Job is hinting at something that Job's friends just can't see. And I want to put it in your vocabulary. If you haven't written this down, write it down tonight. It's the idea of redemptive suffering. I was having a conversation with somebody just the other day, and we were talking about all the suffering in the world, and this person was saying she went and visited somebody in a uh, situation where there's a lot of uh, people who are, uh, they can't really take care of themselves, like a, like a recovery kind of convalescent situation. And so she was telling me that when she goes in there, it's not only the agony she feels for the, her loved one who's not doing as well as he used to do, but then she sees the other people who are also there and the plight that they have to deal with. And so she often leaves there a bit downhearted, not only for the sympathy that she feels for her loved one who can't do what he used to do, but then watches the other people in that environment 
and says, wow, you know, let's face it, we've all probably walked away, maybe after visiting a loved one in, the, in a hospital, maybe other things that you guys can think of, where you just go, man, there is so much suffering in the world, and maybe we're largely shielded from a lot of it, maybe you get exposed to it every day, some of you are in professions where you see it all the time, and then there's even a danger on the other side of that, where you can become callous to suffering where you can see so much of it, and, and some people in certain professions have to almost build calluses because they come upon it so often that they have to almost, you know, distance themselves. They don't want it to get too personal. Law enforcement, EMTs, doctors and nurses, you know, you could probably make your list. But the book of Job is hinting at the fact that when life doesn't make sense, we have to look often beyond the neat and tidy religious philosophical boxes that have been created by generations uh, past us. It's not always that neat and tidy. It's not always that easy to answer the big questions of life. In fact, the book of Job is hinting that only in the councils of heaven, in the wisdom or in the face of God, will, will we really find satisfactory answers. And I'm sure you've noticed with all the dilemmas going on in the world, all the tragedies that happen, the shootings that have just ramped up in our time, the, you know, the heartbreak, the political strife, the racism, you know, the, the things that happen morally in our country that we wonder what's going on, the hate that we see, we can make our list. We start to ask questions like, well, where are the answers truly found? Are they found in the university systems, in the talking heads of our times? Or where can I find true, authentic, genuine answers for suffering? Jesus said in Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And then he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, Jesus seems to be indicating that any serious follower of the Savior has to put into that job description at least the possibility of suffering and the possibility of suffering for your faith. We have believers in other countries that, uh, in China, for example, the underground church says that they thrive the most in a context of suffering. Now, how many of you can say that you wake up in the morning and say, gee golly, Lord, I'm glad that we're suffering because the church is really on fire because we're suffering so much. No, no, in our, in our Western context and, and even in our humanity, we'd say, no way, that's, that's never something that I would wish for or pray for uh, to energize my faith. But Jesus said, for just as the lightning flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first, this is Luke 17, 24, 25, first he, Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's what Jesus knew was coming. Suffering and rejection. And he signed on the dotted line. Yes, Father. That's what I will do. I will come into the world and I will suffer for my people. I will be misunderstood. I will be 
uh, hated without a cause. I will be fastened to a cross, indeed nailed to a cross, not for my crimes, not, not because I did anything wrong. He was the sinless Son of God, God the Son, but for the sake of others. He says in Luke 24, verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Was it my suffering predicted, prophesied, and necessary for your salvation? Do you see what I'm getting at, friends? I'm getting at the idea of redemptive suffering. Now, I'm not saying that your suffering or my suffering can redeem anybody as in save their soul. There's one Savior. His name is Jesus. But the way that we handle a world that is suffering and broken can be redemptive, and I'm going to put that in quotes, as others watch you. Example. Uh, tomorrow we are having a memorial service for a brother named Bill Brock. Bill Brock fought cancer for about 20 years faithfully uh, ministered, planted churches, had a ministry of healing. He always had anointing oil in his pocket. He was always, he was encouraging others while fighting his own cancer for a stretch of, I think, some 20 years. He would find out somebody else had cancer and he would go and pray with them. He wouldn't talk about his own problems. He had pain and, and difficulty and suffering and, and a lot of stuff going on. But he was a prayer warrior. And as Bill suffered with his ongoing cancer and got used to dealing with hospitals and doctors and gained insight into, you know, how you need to fight for your health and how you need to ultimately rely upon God, as other people got a cancer diagnosis, Bill's suffering became redemptive. Everybody with me? This is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that anybody probably who has ever been a Christian for very long and hit a wall of suffering has probably turned to this book. What's the book? The book of Job. Now, some people have put it off. I don't think I want to read Job right now. <laughs> I don't know. The Lord might put me through the book. Don't want that. But if you're suffering, some of you said, okay. And some of you have even ventured in here on Wednesday nights. Okay, <laughs> we're studying Job. But Pastor Michael's the one teaching it, Lord. So make him more accountable than all of us, right? I feel you. I feel you. But I'm throwing it back your way now. All right? It's a two-way street. We're going together. Anyway. But here's the point. We've picked up the book of Job in times where maybe you even felt like Job. Why did you pick up the book? Because you wanted to see if a man who's called righteous and blameless can suffer for reasons he doesn't understand. Somewhere something's happening up in the councils of heaven and he can make it through and still continue to be a worshiper of God and still have redemptive suffering. That is what we're talking about. And I will tell you this, if you mention that phrase to a co-worker who, who knows nothing of the Bible or nothing of the things that we're talking about right now, I'm sure they probably look at you and say, redemptive what? What in the world are you talking about, man? But if they turned on the news tonight and there was a bombing in a church or a shooting in a synagogue or something happens in a local school where all of a sudden we have to deal with the issue again because you know what we have? We have amnesia. We quickly forget how many things have happened where we've got to deal with these questions. 
inexplicable questions, diseases, etc. Look, it's not fun stuff, but it is reality. Would you agree? It's where we live. It's going to hit our doorstep at one point or another or multiple times throughout our lifetime. So I want to have you hold your place. We haven't done a verse yet in Job, I know. This is all preamble. First Peter chapter 3. I want to show you uh, some verses you may have seen before. I want to show you the setting of it in the famous apologetics verse of 1 Peter 3.15. Let's read together, beginning in verse 14 of 1 Peter 3, 3.14. Peter writes, Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, 1 Peter 3.14, you are blessed. Mark that. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Most people wouldn't say, Hey, I've been suffering this week. I'm blessed. You know when people say, I'm blessed? When you got a promotion. You pull up in a new car. Something went through. Something happened. Something good happened at work. You met a person, you know, maybe that you like, or there's a good situation, or going, blessed. What if you said, man, I've had a hangnail all week, and it's killing me. Someone said, sorry to hear that, man. That's a bummer. And you went, no, blast. <laughs> we just freak them out, <laughs> right? Because normally we associate that word, and I think the world's picked up the world now. Blast. It's just kind of thrown around, right? What, is, what does that mean? That means the hand of God is on me, and the tangible hand of God is on me even in times of suffering. Peter says, don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. But sanctify Christ, 15, 1 Peter 3, 15, as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and reverence. Brothers and sisters, please keep in mind that it would seem that Peter is saying that the reason that someone might ask you about the hope that you have is because you were suffering for righteousness' sake. That's the context of 1 Peter 3.15. It's actually giving an apologetic for the hope that you have in the midst of suffering and even unjust suffering or maybe we might say inexplicable suffering. We're to do it with gentleness we to keep a good conscience, 16, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so, and sometimes he does, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also died, that word is the same word, it can be translated, Christ also suffered for sins. His suffering was redemptive. It was once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. That's why he did it. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you see the, the link that Peter is making between the suffering that you may experience in the world and you can give a testimony of the hope that you have and that leads us into the gospel or the suffering of Christ, which was the ultimate redemptive act. Everybody with me? There's a sense in which, turn back to Job, that your suffering can be redemptive. That does not fit with Bildad the Shuhite's philosophy. He's the second friend to speak, Job 8.1. It says, then Bildad the Shuhite answered. 
Now, just so you guys know, this is kind of a side note, but Bildad the Shuhite is the shortest man in the Bible. Bildad the Shuhite. Everybody with me? I don't know how you get much shorter than that. Okay, so, so this is why we have called the message the wisdom that falls. You guys got it. The wisdom that falls short. Some years ago, we were out in the neighborhood and we were handing out invitations to the church. The church was fairly small. Shane was a little boy. Shane had a mysterious Boston accent. We're not sure where it came from. He was raised in Southern California, but he spoke Bostonese. So we're pulling this wagon around and we're going door to door and we're handing out invitations to the church. And I was with a friend of mine, Dr. Green. He's about six foot two. I'm about six one. What? So, so Shane had an epiphany. He looked at Dr. Green, and then he looked at me. He looked at Dr. Green, and he looked at me. And it was like he, for the first time, he discovered my shortness. And he went, Dad, why are you so short? <laughs> I was devastated. <laughs> Dad, you're short. Yes, son. <laughs> Compared to Dr. Green, but compared to others, I'll have you know I'm one of the tallest Italians in my family. <laughs> but we'll move on. Anyway, Bill Dad, the shoe height. All right. Actually, seriously, he's from an area called Shua. And uh, we, we introduced him in uh, chapter two. So I won't spend a lot of time talking to you about where he's from. But he was known as a wise man. And Here's what he says to Job. He says, how long will you say these things? Now remember, Job has just listed all of his tough questions. He's questioning God. He's still a believer, but he's got questions. And Bildad says to Job, how long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. Scholars would say, commentators would say that Bildad is angry. And it's not that Bildad has had enough with Job's talking. I don't know how long the speech of Job would be if you timed it, but these guys talked about wisdom at the gates all day long. It's not that he's tired of Job like going on and on and on. He's tired of the content of Job's speech. He doesn't like it. He doesn't agree with it. And so this is where the idea of an old windbag comes from. <laughs> he says, Job, you're a windbag. Your words are like a mighty wind. You're full of a whole lot of hot air. Bildad is angry. Says one writer, his speech is described as short, punchy, a speech built upon a simple axiom, a simple premise. Here's the premise. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. That's the premise of Bildad. Bildad the Shuhite. His wisdom is going to fall short. But that's what he thinks. And there's a lot of people in our world that think just that. That's why they struggle with why do bad things happen to good people. R.C. Sproul was asked that question one time. Why do bad things happen to good people? And Sproul responded, well, maybe we should talk about whether or not there's any good people. <laughs> then we can talk about whether or not bad things happen to good people. Because Good is in a relative sense. Biblically speaking, there is no one good, no, not one. However, 
we would agree that there's good people around, right? And that's what we struggle with. We see, we see people who are benevolent. We see people who are sympathetic. We see people who are nice. And then we hear something happen to them, and we go, that doesn't make sense. And some people just, they ask the question to the universe, you know. Universe, this doesn't make sense. And then there's people with a worldview that just, they're naturalists, and so they just say, well, that's just random, purposeless, mindless chance. After all, that's the universe we live in. Nobody's steering. Nobody's in control. It's just evolution. And so, yeah, that's going to happen. Hope it doesn't happen to me. Hope it doesn't fall on my doorstep, but that's just life. But then there's other people who have God in the equation, and then, and then they start asking questions like this. Well, if God is all good, and he's holy, and he's just, then why do we have evil and suffering in the world? And the answer to that question is, this is not the world that God intended. The world is broken. When God first made everything in the garden, he kept saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. The one thing he said wasn't good was for the man to be alone. And then he solved that by making Eve. So God made everything good, but our first parents... They messed it up. And they let the serpent into it, and they did the, the one tree. The one. They had access to all the other trees. The one tree that was off limits. Ah, let's go see. It's forbidden. Just that word, forbidden. What's Eve doing over by the tree? Right? But we know how we are. Is it really wet paint? I'm not sure I believe it. Is there a stain on my pants? Yeah, it said wet paint. Yeah, but I don't know. The tree is hanging over the wall. Do not pick this fruit. Fruit belongs to the owner. But it's now hanging over the wall. It's community property. Public sidewalk. And then you hear <laughs> shotguns being loaded. Yeah, anyway. Personal experience. <laughs> You're full of a, a whole lot of hot air, Job. This is another way of saying what you're saying is nonsense. Have you ever tired easily of someone, someone's pontificating, maybe you disagree, and you go, oh, no way. Uh, uh, not, no, nonsense. And sometimes we don't say it out loud, but it's our nonverbal body language. Like, <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. Well, they already know you checked out like five minutes ago. That's Bildad. Bildad's actually angry at Job. To say to somebody, your words are a mighty wind, like they're nothing, is what Bildad is saying. And you know, it's hard sometimes to be a patient listener, even when we might, like for example, you're trying to witness to someone, let's just say, you know that their view is wrong. It's not biblical, etc. Do you find yourself impatient? But if you want to be heard, you have to sometimes sacrifice hearing someone, even if you already know that all the ideas are wrong. Because if they don't know that you are willing to hear them, then will they hear you? If you're talking over them constantly, you know you're right, so you want to get your words in, but that's why we do things with gentleness and reverence. 
And so Bildad, working from the premise that God is always going to do things a certain way, he says, does God pervert justice? Well, we would all answer no. Does the Almighty, that's the Hebrew word Shaddai, God is known as El Shaddai, that's the word Almighty. Does he pervert what is right? Bildad's major premise. Job, are you questioning God's justice or justness? Surely Job is questioning and wrestling and Maybe Bildad is saying what he said because maybe he hasn't had to wrestle with it yet to this degree. Let me just explain. Sometimes a Christian works through stuff because that's where they are. And it is, we have to be careful and we need discernment and we need the wisdom of the Spirit because if we haven't been in their moccasins, walking their road, dealing with their stuff, if we're quick to just jump on them, with what we know to be true, but we haven't suffered what they're going through, then maybe if we were, we would be asking the same questions that they're asking. You see, we, we have to give a little bit of wiggle room sometimes when we don't completely understand what someone's going through. Now, it is true that Abraham said to God, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Genesis 18:25. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. Righteous and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32.4. And so God does not pervert justice, it's true. But something else is going on. But working from that premise, Bildad, in a devastating, unfeeling way, I think he needed some sensitivity training, says these words. If your son sinned against God, against him, then he, God, delivered them over or delivered them into the power of their transgression. Translation. Job, your kids are dead because they sinned against God. Oh, wow, Bildad, really? That's what you have to say to your friend? Yeah, because I'm working from a premise that Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and that's all there is. This is black and white. There's no wiggle room. There's no gray areas. There's nothing else. So your kids died when the house collapsed on them. And so Job, your kids are dead because they certainly sinned against God and God literally, here's the Hebrew, Yod, he put them into the hand or the power of their sin. Here's another way to say it. Your kids got what was coming to them. I think Bildad needs some sensitivity training. I think Bildad maybe needs to take a class on grief because why would he ever say that to Job? Job is reeling from the loss of his children. And, and Bildad has the gumption, the gall, to say this to him. Well, God just simply gave your kids what they deserved. Now, would Bildad have reason to back up his premise? He could talk about Korah's rebellion in number 16. Remember Korah's rebelling against Moses? You, you're not the only one that speaks for God. And Moses finally says, okay, those who are on Korah's side, you go over there. Those who are on the Lord's side, come over here. And if you ever read the account, the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and the rest of his marching band. <laughs> ah! 
And Bildad might say, see, it's biblical, number 16. How about in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira? Is that the amount that you got for the land that you sold? Oh, yeah. Why is your pocket looking so full? <laughs> Why does your wallet look so fat? Oh, no, that's all we got for the land. Well, you know what happened. On the spot, God killed Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5. And then later in the book of Acts, Herod is giving a speech, and the people say, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And Herod was like eating it up. Yeah, keep telling me. I'm a God. Yeah, I like it. Fan me. Feed me another grape. And an angel of the Lord killed Herod, and he was eaten by worms and died. You read your Bible and you're like, yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, and so Bildad could say, yep, number 16, Acts 5, Acts 12, hold on. How about Luke 13? Jesus says these words. Do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus, why did the tower fall on 18 people? Why did Pilate mingle the blood of worshipers with the sacrifices in the temple courts? Why? Jesus doesn't even answer it. He says, I tell you this though, unless you repent, you're going to perish like them. You think you're better than them? You see, when we are trying to explain uh, catastrophes and calamities and the why question, we don't always know why, but it is motivation to get right with God. You see, Bildad doesn't have access, of course, to all the stories that we do in our Bible today, but he's presumed, and NIV, when your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. He gave them over to the power of their sin. Paul in Romans describes sin as a power. Sin is not an entity per se, but sin is described as a power. How so? Because when you give yourself over to sin, there are consequences. There are wages. The penalty that I deserve for my sin, just one of my sins, is death. Now when I begin to consider my sin, the things that I've fallen short in, in thought, word, deeds, things that I should have done and failed to do, things that I put off, things that I whispered in my mind. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sin, O oh Lord, who could stand? And Bildad, if he was thinking along the grace line, the power of the gospel, he might say, wait a minute. If a house fell on my ten children, would I want Job to say to me, hey, you know what? philosophically and religiously speaking, man's wisdom here, the house fell on your children because they obviously sinned against God. And so that's why the roof came tumbling down. Have a nice day. No. You wouldn't, say, you wouldn't want somebody to say that to you because they wouldn't have enough information to know why that happened. Now remember, in every speech that's given by a friend of Job, there's some truth to it. Is it possible that God could pour out judgment in that way for sin? Yes. 
But is it true in every case? No. The man that was born blind, who sinned? The disciples say to Jesus, him or his parents? That this man was born with this blindness. He was born that way. Did he do something in the womb? That was one of the popular thoughts of the day. And Jesus says, no. Neither him nor his parents sinned. But this has happened, that the glory of God, John 9, might be manifest in this man. Sometimes God has a purpose where he redeems a situation. He's allowed something. Johnny Erickson taught him. She's in Israel at the pool of Bethesda where Jesus famously healed a man 38 years, I think, in the condition. And Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? He, he beautifully heals the man. Johnny Erickson taught a quadriplegic from the time she was 18. She's, I think, in her 60s now, also fighting cancer. Finds herself at the pool of Bethesda, separated from her group. And she said she had been dreaming of, of this moment to be at this pool of Bethesda. And so you're listening and you're thinking, the next thing that Johnny Erickson Tata is going to say is, Lord, right here at the pool of Bethesda, like you did 2,000 years ago, would you heal me? And Johnny says, I began to pray at the pool, nobody else around, and I began to thank God. Are you ready? That he hasn't healed me. And you're like, what, Johnny? I began to praise the Lord at the pool of Bethesda that he did not heal me. And here's what she says. Because if I would have been healed or never had this accident, I'm not sure that I would have served him in the way that I have. She has a worldwide, worldwide wheelchair ministry. She has ministered to countless millions, encouraging them from a wheelchair with her faith. Why would Johnny Erickson Tata ever say, thank you, Lord, for not healing me? It's called redemptive suffering. I know it's not fun. I know that Johnny has said that she wakes up on certain days and has nothing left to give and says, Lord, you're going to have to even give me your smile. I don't even have a smile to give to anybody today. But she leans into the Lord, and the Lord uses her suffering for his glory. This is what we're getting at. But Bildad is not factoring in the grace of the gospel. He's not factoring in, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He can't see the shadow of the cross. So he's got to put this in a little package. Your kids obviously sinned against God. The roof fell in on them, but... Maybe you're not as bad of a sinner as your kids. You're still alive, verse 5. So if you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty of Shaddai, if you're pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself, verse 6, for you and restore your righteous estate. Hey, Job, your kids are dead, given over to the power of their sin, but you're still alive, so your sin must not be as bad. Remember, this is Bildad's premise, his, his worldview. If you would cry out, if you would pray for God to be merciful to you, well, then certainly God would rouse himself and he would fix your situation. Wait a minute, brothers and sisters, hasn't Job been crying out to God for the last two chapters? But he hasn't quite cried out to God the way Bilbo, I mean Bildad, <laughs> Bilbo's character, short guy from Lord of the Rings. We're going with short tonight, okay? The way that he wants him to. 
here's the, here's the, the idea. Here's the thrust of it. Job, you obviously need to repent of something and you haven't repented of anything yet. Confess your sin because he who confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy. Mercy. Right, Job? Wrong. Why? Because I don't know what to confess, says Job. I don't know what I did wrong. Do you want me to make something up, Bilbo? I mean, Bill Dad. <laughs> Do you want me to just say, okay, I think I... And if Job had to reach far to find something like, yeah, you know, I was a little mean to that person the other day, or would that explain his calamity? Yeah, you know, I, I did have a weird thought. You know, I mean, no. That's where Job is at. He's saying, look, I don't know what you want me to do because I am crying out to God. Well, if you would just be pure and upright, implication, you need to repent. Surely God would rouse himself, verse 6. He would restore your righteous estate. Look, Job, all you got to do is repent. But Job 1, 1 and Job 1, 8 says that Job was a righteous and blameless man. He even offered sacrifice for his kids continually just in case they did something wrong. What more could the guy do from the standpoint of being pious and righteous? I would say to you, probably not much more. So that can't be the issue. And he says, though your beginning was insignificant, <laughs> sometimes you don't know how to take words of fear. You know, your beginning was quite insignificant. What beginning? <laughs> does, does he refer to the time I was born? Like before I built my estate? Or is he talking about now since I've lost everything? Because Job was anything but insignificant. He was the greatest man of all the East. You ever had somebody, yeah, you're doing great. You, you, you were very insignificant, but now. <laughs> he says, but your end will increase greatly. Notice he, he focuses on his estate in verse 6 and increase. What do you think Bildad's getting at? Job, you had such a marvelous farm, so many animals, so many servants, so many great things going on. You were such a great man. You had people waiting on you. You gave orders to people. Now your whole life's a rubble. If you just repent, I'm sure God will restore all your possessions back to you. Everybody turn to Luke 12. Hold your place in Job, Luke 12. So Jesus was constantly talking to us about priorities. Luke chapter 12. This is one of those chapters where he's dealing with possessions. Luke 12, 15. Luke 12, 15. Do you really think at this point that Job's main concern is that his estate is restored? You think Job's thinking about, you know, that car I used to have? Wow. Boy, do I miss it. What do you think Job's thoughts actually are? On his family. On his faith. I think Job might say, if we could read between the lines, what are you talking about? I'll get my three-story house back. I don't care about the house. I care about what God thinks of me. I care about my children and that they're no longer here. I could care less about that car or that camel. Jesus said to them, beware. Luke 12, 15. Be on your guard against every form of greed. 
For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. He, he told them a parable. The land of a certain rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? He says, This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. I want you to just think of Job for this study. There I will store all my grain and my goods. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man, the person who lays up treasure for himself and not, is not rich toward God. I think that's Job's concern. I want to be rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, his disciples, for this reason, because this is true, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For life is more than food and the body than clothing. Turn back to Job chapter 8. You see, Bildad is concerned about the outward. Job is concerned more about the inward. Bildad is saying, Job, if you just get everything right with God again, he'll restore your material possessions. He'll, he'll restore things back to you. But Bildad assumes that he knows the root cause of Job's trouble, and he doesn't. That's why his wisdom falls woefully short. Job is suffering because of a satanic attack, but also because God sovereignly has allowed him to suffer for all the purposes that we mentioned at the outset of this message, and I'm sure much more. To reveal the heart of a true worshiper, God knows that many throughout the century of time will open to this book, and God is trying to prove something to Job and to the angels, and you can fill in the rest of the blanks. And so Bildad goes on, he says, please inquire, okay, if you're wondering if I'm correct, Inquire of past generations. Consider the things searched out by their fathers. Look at the patriarchs if you think I'm blowing smoke, says Bildad. Isn't this what they taught? That you're righteous and you get blessed for it? This is an undeniable pattern, he might say. For we, Bildad speaking to Job and the others, we're only of yesterday and know nothing because our days are on earth are as a shadow. Isn't that rather poetic? We are only of yesterday. It almost sounds like a book or a poem or a song. We're only of yesterday. I know you're all thinking it. Think of it. Yesterday. <laughs> all my troubles seem so. Yeah. Come on, pick it up. And I, I don't even know how it goes. Come on, Brother Bert. We want to get Brother Bert a shirt that says praise the Lord because that's always what Brother Bert is doing is praising the Lord. Amen. You can sing it for us, Bert, but we'll do that later. <laughs> Will they not? Look at verse 10. The patriarchs, the fathers teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds. Hey, if you look back at the pattern of life, Job, are you teachable? Might be the implication. If you look at past generations, then you would find this. But past generations also discovered grace. Like Abram discovered that righteousness comes by faith. David said, how blessed is the man whom you don't impart iniquity to. Psalm 32. They also discovered things about grace. Where's that, Bildad? 
Bildad's going to give us a couple of illustrations and we're done. He says, first illustration, both complementary to his point. He says, can the papyrus grow up without marsh? 11, Job 8. Can the rushes grow without water? While it is still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any plant. Now the reeds from which papyrus is taken is common in Egypt. A very valuable plant used to make baskets, mats, parchment. In a damp, swampy area with a warm climate like the Nile, they grow quickly. They grow up to 8 to 10 feet. They flourish. Just as the wicked might grow, metaphorically grow proud, tall, etc. But take away the water supply, and what happens? Well, they die quickly. So, he says, are the paths of all who forget God. Remember, implication, Bildad speaking to Job. Apparently, you've forgotten God. That's why you've fallen the way that you have. You were once proud and tall, but now you've, you've fallen. Look at, look at you, Job. You're a mess. Maybe you've forgotten God. The hope of the godless will perish, whose confidence is fragile and whose trust a spider's web. Now, a spider's web is a frustrating experience because if you walk through a spider's web, nobody can see what's happened to you, but you know it's there, and you're trying to... <laughs> people are like, oh, what's wrong with that person? <laughs> you just want to get it off. And spider's web, if, if, if nothing else, is sticky. And then you always have in the back of your mind, is that spider still on that web? And if he is, is he riding on the back of my neck right now? Have you ever passed through a web and you begin to imagine that bugs are everywhere, especially in areas that you cannot see? Is there a bug on me? You tell your wife, ah! There's nothing on you. Stop crying like a baby. Is there a, is there, is there, can, can you kill it? Right? I walk through the web. There's a little strand coming from your ear. Get over it, would you, tough guy? Right? But if you were ever in a situation where something bad was happening and you tried to lean on a spider's web to hold you up, you in trouble. Because as impressive as a spider's web is, detailed, meticulous, all of that catches the fly, don't lean on it to hold you up. It ain't going to work. Well, he, he trusts in his house, 15, but it does not stand. This is the godless Bildad is building his case. He holds fast to it, but it does not endure. This is the ungodly. They forget God. They walk in their own wisdom. They don't walk in the wisdom of the Lord. They rely on their own wisdom. They hear the words of Jesus, Matthew 7, but they don't do it. They're like those who built their house on sand and now on rock. Their house, notice, end of 15, does not endure. Short-lived hope, spider web leaning into it, that's it. But the Bible says God can keep you from falling. He can make you stand blameless in his presence with great joy. Second illustration, it says he thrives. He is a lush plant, ESV, before the sun. His shoots spread out over his garden. He's like NIV 16, a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its shoots all over the garden or over the garden. Second illustra illustration is a lush plant, even in the hot sun, because it's well-watered. Psalm 1, Jeremiah 17, it has good, vigorous growth. The shoots spread out all over the garden. If you ever have uh, our neighbors planted, I can't remember the name of the plant, 
but the things take over everything. Have you, uh, what's the, what is it? Morning glory, or there's, is it Bougainvillea? Bougainvillea. <laughs> and so the thing grows over everything. It's like an ivy kind of thing. Wraps around your fence and everything. It can look like, man, th this thing's dominating the backyard. It's wrapped up the dog, the cat, <laughs> you know. What's going on? One of those Venus flytrap kind of things. His roots wrap around a rock pile, 17. He grasps a house of stones. It pictures a climbing plant dominating everything. If he's removed from his place, then it will deny him. It might say something like this. Have you ever, ever done the work and taken it out? I never saw you. It's like it was never there. Behold, this is the joy of his way. Now, I think swinging to the righteous. And out of the dust, others will spring. I think Bill Dad now trying to get a little sensitivity training says to Job, hey Job, even though your life is a shambles, maybe from underneath the ground where people can't see, the shoots will begin to spring up again. Things that you thought were torn out, maybe they'll begin to flourish again. This is probably the interpretation. Unseen growth will spring up. Maybe you'll be like a transplanted plant. They'll take you, maybe your little palm, Sega palm, very valuable, and you'll get planted from over here, and they'll plant you over here, and you'll, you'll flourish again. Trying to end on a high note. Conclusion. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, so get, get your integrity back, Job, nor will he support the evildoers. Yet, he says, he will yet, Job, I want to give you some hope after I've devastated you with several layers of my argument. He says, Job 21, he, God, will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. There's a scene in the, one of the Lord of the Rings movies and the, the king who's in all these battles looks at his daughter who's had to fight all these wars and he says to her, I wish that I could see you smile again. My wish for you is that you could laugh again. I think that's what, you know, imagine being, I don't know how long Bill Dad's been with Job, but seven days of silence and then all that's gone on. Maybe it's been months. And maybe that's what Bill Dad is trying to say to Job now. You're going to get your laughter back. You're going to get your smile back. You ever lost your smile? You, you, ever, you ever been through a tough stretch a bummer period of time, looked in the mirror and went, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I even know how to smile anymore. Lord, give me my smile back. Give me my laughter back. Laughter is good medicine. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter, Job. But remember, Bill Dad's thinking, if you do what I say, maybe you'll be able to go back to the feast like your children used to have, honor the feast, and you could... You could dance and sing again and enjoy a party again. You know, some of us, we go through stretches and we're like, I don't even know if I could have fun at a party. That's where Job's at. Those who hate you, like the enemies that came and raided your property and killed your servants and animals, those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Job, if you're righteous, you won't perish. The wicked will perish, so be of good cheer. cheer. He tries to end with some positive notes. But if you're Job, 
final minute of the sermon. If you're Job, what do you have to be thinking after Bildad's speech? Okay, thanks for ending on a positive note, but dude, my kids are gone. My wife has told me to curse God and die. I'm sitting in a rubble pile. I still have these boils. I still can't sleep at night. I am not getting answers from God, and all you've done is give me a box to show me that I must have sinned, and my kids sinned worse, and that's why all the calamity came upon me. And maybe if I come up with something good and repent, I'll find some, some reprieve. But brothers and sisters, what Job needs, and this will come up in the next chapter, is he needs an advocate. He needs a redeemer. He needs someone who will plead his cause. And Job's going to begin to dig down into the gospel. Because not everything that we encounter in this life is going to make sense. There's just going to be some things that happen, and it's just the result of a fallen world. And it's not always going to fit in our tidy little box. And that's when we're going to have to say, Lord, if I am in a season of suffering, I don't want to be, I wouldn't choose to be, but I'm here now, and I'm going to lean into you and find my answers in your face because I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know ultimately no weapon formed against me will prosper. And I know Messiah is coming. Would you bow your head and hearts with me? Father, Thank you for Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Job. He shouldn't have suffered the way that he did. But he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. You put your love on display at that terrible cross where he suffered. Took my shame, my agony, the weight of my guilt, the wrath of God. Why, oh, why? Why would he do that? Um, amazing love. How could it be that you, my king, would die for me? Job is beginning to show the shadow of the cross. The greater Job, Jesus, who would come into the world, who would make an open spectacle, who would humiliate principalities and powers, triumphing over them by the cross, who would take the suffering and the injustice of the cross and turn it around for the greatest good. Redemptive suffering indeed. Oh Lord, it is not our favorite subject, but it is where we live. It's the world in which we find ourselves. Some are in the middle of it right now. Some have just come out of it. Some may face it in the near future or distant future, but whatever time that may be, may it lead us to a bloodstained cross. But may it also lead us to an empty tomb, a risen Lord, and the hope that there is life beyond even the grave. Keep your head and heart bowed if you just need a few moments to just meditate on God's word. If you're not a Christian tonight, I would just encourage you something like this. Lord Jesus, would you save me? I believe in your death on that cross for me. Thank you for shedding your blood and dying in my place. I put my faith and trust in your death on the cross for me, your resurrection from the dead. Please pray it if it's you. If you've been putting it off, it, now's the time. Turn to him and be saved. Lord, I trust in you. Be my Lord, be my Savior, be my King, be my God. I repent of my sin.
and I receive you as my Lord. I want to be born again. Save me, Lord. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being in our lives. Father, for that saint that's holding on, that saint that needs this, the fresh wind of your spirit to be encouraged tonight, to be revived, to be excited again about evangelism, to be passionate again about the gospel. May you fill them and bless them. Bless this sweet, precious congregation with encouragement and faith in all they need. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.